0: Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, for the last in this special series celebrating the Andre Simon Awards 2021, which announces the winners tonight. This week we meet Yasmin Khan, whose book Ripe Figs transports us across the East Mediterranean, tasting the best food in Greece, Turkey and Cyprus in the company of refugees and activists. As they chop and chat about borders, memory and identity... Yasmin shows us how food can give dignity and humanise people in the harshest of circumstances. It could be a more pertinent subject right now. But before we meet Yasmin, Yemesi Yarabisala, this year's food assessor, tells us why she plucked ripe figs
1: from the massive pile of entries for this year's award. Uh, Yasmin Khan um, owns that masterly distinction of being a food activist. And when you're coming out of the last two years, I can't, I can't think of a more important dis- distinction and Khan is able to lead us through painful terrain and times so with a comforting palate of food. She uses the Eastern Mediterranean as her canvas. And she allows people to speak for themselves. She unravels the generalizations and broadens our thoughts. She gives us necessary nourishment for thought. And her food and photographs are impeccable. The journey and the light are irresistible. So Khan successfully strikes that balance. That in fact needs to be the new normal when, where we don't eat everything we can because our appetites are better refined, our tables are more accommodating, our hedonism is more politically correct, more compassionate and inclusive. Her book transports you beautifully and is a unique gem.
0: And before we set off to Athens to accompany Yasmin on her journey across the East Med, I took her back to her childhood home in Birmingham, which she says was always full of family members and friends fleeing political and social chaos, and asked her if this is where her activism began.
2: I think so, yes. So I was born in the UK, but my mother is from Iran and my dad is from Pakistan. And when I was very young, um, we actually went back to Iran for a number of years because my mum was doing her PhD fieldwork over there. Um, And it was a very tumultuous time. It was during the Iran-Iraq War, which went on from like, 81 to 87 you know a million people kind of were killed during that war um but also it was a time of intense political persecution in Iran and my family were very kind of active against the Iranian regime and um like many families from from the region uh kind of sadly kind of paid the price for that in terms of political executions or imprisonment um or or you know you know, discrimination to that effect. So uh, as you can imagine, as, as I think that really stayed with me as a child. And yeah. back then, which actually I was, was going to say back then, but I think this very much plays out across the UK at the moment as well. Um, it, it's very common, I think, for new migrant communities to support other ones. So uh, you know, lots of refugees were coming over from Iran in the 80s. And uh, yeah, I have lots of memories of, of kind of family gatherings and and that very much being kind of a topic of conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And then of course I met you first at the Delicious Podcast when you
0: were uh, doing Zaytun, which was the story of people who've been displaced in Palestine. And you know you're, you're you're very good at telling stories that bring places that are very much about the headlines for many of us to life.
2: Well, I what I love about food, apart from the obvious, you know the 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 incredible taste, the smells, the delight that we all get from the pleasures of a good meal. One of the most powerful things about exploring food, and and I'm sure this is one of the reasons why you love kind of the work you do as well, is that food often acts as a gateway to exploring a whole host of other issues. You know, when you examine what is on a plate, whether that is in, um, you know, Manchester or Mumbai, what you're actually looking at is a whole series of experiences that have come through trade and history and economics and, you know, gender relations and agriculture. And so I think food is just a wonderful vehicle for telling stories. And especially when it comes to the migrant experience, because all of us, you know, whether it's, you know, talking about what our granny used to make when we were growing, up or thinking more kind of I guess, expansively about how the heritage of the country that we're in developed um, can find that through, through um, a meal. So I guess that's what really draw, drew me to it. And, and, you know, I come from a family of farmers. My mum's side of the family were rice farmers in Iran. My mum is a you know, nutritionist by training. And, and so food, I guess, was always something that we talked about as a, from a professional point of view as well. Yeah. So why the Eastern
0: Med this time? You've chosen to take us through Turkey Greece and Cyprus. Um, Is it just because of that mass exodus of refugees, uh, you know, the biggest movement of people that Europe has seen, as you say in in your book since World War Two? Is it that that drove you to look at the Eastern Med this time?
2: That was a probably the primary factor because what I like to do in my cookbooks, I mean, look, you know, if we want a recipe, we can all go online and and find a recipe for any dish we want to make. But I think the beauty of a good cookbook is something that you turn to that kind kind of gives you an insight into a world or a technique and kind of digs deeper really than just a set of you know ingredients and a recipe um and whilst I absolutely love the food of the Eastern Med I mean you know I live just off Green Lanes in London which is an area of real historic Greek Cypriot and Turkish communities you know I mean my local greengrocers are are filled with bottles of olive oil and crates of halloumi and tubs of marinated olives um so as much as I love that food and it's very much part of the environment in which I live in uh uh i also wanted to use this book as i've done with all my books i think to try and explore an issue that's oh a little bit prickly and a little bit difficult and i think food is such a great entry way to do that and of course the issue i wanted to look at is how in the 21st century do we deal with what one of the oldest kind of challenges i guess of humanity which is that people have always moved and are likely to always move again um and how do we do that with, I guess, empathy, humanity, but also the very real constructs, I think, and constraints of nationality and borders? You know, it's not a black and white issue and... uh i mean we're recording this actually on a day and on a day that's significant on this issue in several reasons really one with you know with the russian invasion of ukraine again with Mm -hmm. you know when you said the biggest mass movement of people since the second world war i just thought in my head oh god well i hope that is the case you know with what's happening in ukraine we don't know um but also you know our own government you know in the house of lords today the nationality and borders bill is going through very controversial bill kind of looking at criminalizing a lot of migration. Sending a lot of refugees off to offshore detention camps. So it's just a very live issue. So I thought, I know, oh, yeah. I'll I'll try and, and do something small to add to the debate. <laughs>
0: <laughs> something small. Oh, no. It's I mean it's fascinating. Yemisi Arabasala, who's talked about why your book is on the short list, one of the seven best food books of the year, according to the Andre Simons. She says It's about how we enjoy other food cultures and writing like yours broadens our thoughts. I thought that was fantastically interesting that books like yours, writing like yours, that you go off as an activist to kind of find places for us and make us think very differently helps us to understand not just the food, but the culture.
2: Well, that's the beauty of the best kind of writing, I have to say. I don't know, you know, Mm. sometimes I, you know, when people ask me about my favourite books, uh, because often, you know, people do want to, kind of, once you're a writer, people want to know what you're reading. And the books that I've always been drawn to, and I read a lot of fiction, uh, kind of books with a a sense of place, you know, I'm just, you know, something like Anne Patchett's State of Wonder, or Chimananda Ngozi Adochi's, I mean, Americana, or Half a Yellow Sun. And, I guess I try and emulate that in my own books, even though they're not fiction in any way, uh, because I think I like to go on a journey with the books that I read. So I, I hope that my readers do the same. Take us to Athens for your first food moment. Yes, so oh, Athens is such an incredible food city. Um I don't know if you've been, but it's it's you know, it's oh, it's wow. it's so you know, I mean, whether you're kind of sitting down for a to a beautiful kind of feast of braised lamb or kind of just grabbing some souvlaki or eating some baklava Um I you know, I think that it's such a warm food culture in Athens. And I'd kind of gone there, you know, full of like lots of great enthusiasm and excitement as I was planning my trip. Um For all the things I was going to explore, Um, but I ended up actually having a really difficult time when I was in Athens. And the book, rather, I think, unexpectedly starts with that. It um, it starts because um, it kind of chronicles the fact that I uh, had recently kind of had a miscarriage, and all of a sudden was kind of in the middle of the city, and it was really affecting my sense of taste and my ability to absorb everything. And I I think, you know, two years into a pandemic, I think that's something we can all relate to because stress or grief of whatever kind does hugely affect our appetites. And I wanted to include that in the book because uh, as a travel writer, I see myself as both a food and a travel writer. So much of the modern food and travel experience is so sanitised these days, isn't it? It's an Instagrammer in front of a market, you know, grinning at the camera with a basket of you know, lemons. (laughs) But any of us who have been on holiday, let alone travel, know that, I mean, it's hardly like that, is it? You know, whether it's a terrible hotel or a a stress in your family or just, you know, that that whatever you might be going through or witnessing and where you are. And the title of the book comes from that experience because I was kind of feeling kind of tired and glum and a bit hormonal and stressed. And I was eating a punnet of uh, fresh figs and for me, you know, my family in Iran, I said there were farmers and uh, there are two huge fig trees on my grandparents' um, small kind of farm. And I have these really beautiful memories of my grandfather kind of harvesting figs early in the morning before breakfast when we'd be there on our summer holidays. And I, I wrote about that in my first book, The Saffron Tales, actually, that moment. And he'd come and he'd kind of prod us awake with his walking stick. And, uh, it, you know, we'd had to get to the table, as you know, as soon as he woke us up, because we knew that he, is so was so greedy, he would have eaten a lot, you know, if we didn't get there quickly. And all of a sudden you know these kind of ripe figs that I was eating just transported me to another place of, of kind of safety and connection and love, and I thought, well, that's what food can do. Actually, that you know, through the the act of simply tasting and savoring something, we connect to our emotions and our memory in such a visceral way. And seeing as I was writing about migration, it just suddenly occurred to me that maybe that would be a good title for the book. And of course, ripe figs are through uh, you can find them throughout that region.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful piece of writing. Um, You know, I had three miscarriages between my two girls um, and I totally, you know, I welled up as soon as I read that. You know, you talk about this hormones crashing and all sorts of emotions and you're on your own in Athens at the beginning of this big trip we all feel this multitude of different emotions shame fear grief all these things with with miscarriage which actually hasn't been talked about a huge amount it certainly wasn't talked about at all when I was having uh, my miscarriages and you you've written very beautifully about that in other works since the book has come out how has that been for you has it been cathartic
2: Well, first of all, I'm so sorry to hear about your miscarriages. You know, I do know that even my friends who have children, I mean, I I don't have children, but um, they never really leave you, I think, the trauma of them. And people seem to kind of think, oh, you've had kids now. So they do, but it's deeply traumatic. And Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I'm really, really sorry to hear you went through that. I, I actually had three miscarriages also from the time that the book was commissioned to submitting it. I, I had my last mm. miscarriage whilst I was writing the the final essays in the book. Uh, so it was very much top and tailed. And the, quite a few pictures in the book are of me being pregnant, uh, two of the miscarriages happened after trips to Cyprus. So I had a huge amount of guilt about whether I should have done those trips, whether I should have been working, all the things Mm -hmm. that I think that women very much beat ourselves up for after miscarriages. Um, I don't know if it's been cathartic because I think anyone who struggled with fertility challenges knows that they don't go away easily. But it certainly felt validating to write about the experiences and connect with so many other women um, and men, actually, uh, who've gone through similar things. I think there has almost become, not a trend, but I mean, it's great that people are now now speaking up about it. But mm-hmm. when I had my first one, that certainly wasn't the case. And I think uh, the more we can try collectively to lift the taboos on, on some of these issues, the better access women can get to resources. I still think there's huge issues around how the NHS treats women who mm-hmm. have miscarriages. Um, and yeah, again, if, if on a small level, I can help other women feel that they weren't alone, then... Then yeah, I
0: think it would have. It's helpful. It's really important and huge love to you for that, Yasmin. It's a, It's an extraordinary contribution and and incredibly generous of you to to share that. So thank you for for all of us in that massive community who've been through that. You go in search of people and stories though to from Athens. You you make your first stop at the Melissa Women's Refugee Organisation and Community Centre. It's lovely. Melissa means honeybee <laughs> in Greek. It's wonderful. It you needed time to to grieve and you found your time amongst a group of women whose life is has been turned upside down tell us a little bit about that
2: yeah it's, it's very interesting how this book I mean I don't know it just had its own journey and it did feel strange to be going through my own grief and then also be surrounded by so many people through the course of the book who'd gone through so much loss Um, But what I wanted to do in the book, because I think it's, you know, you can get a bit kind of bogged down in these kind of narratives with lots of kind of quite depressing stories about how terrible things are in a refugee camp or what struggles people have gone through. But what I really wanted to do was actually show the glimmers of solidarity, hope and community that I found across the Eastern Mediterranean. And Melissa was a wonderful example. I'm set up by kind of Greek women but really when I visited it was just working as a very vibrant social centre where women of all nationalities, I mean the day I was there there was a Nigerian woman cooking, Um, we had kind of Syrian and Iranian refugees kind of sitting around, we had like a language class going on, Um, we had kind of kids kind of um, uh, learning how to paint and you know what what they were all kind of saying is that the Melissa kind of organisation had very much used full food as a tool to bring kind of the the women together, but also just offer, I guess, a table through which they could explore those issues, because we know what it's like. It's just so much easier to have conversations when we're sat around at the same table. Yes, absolutely. And you did the same way you went to a cafe
0: restaurant that was run by a social centre on on Lesbos, which, of course, we know is one of the biggest refugee centres. I mean, a Terrible place in Maria Camp. Um, tell us a little <laughs> bit about that.
2: You know, Lesvos is really the epicenter of that European. Um I guess refugee crisis or movement of people that, that we've seen over the last five years um, an estimated half a million people have moved through this island which just had inhabitants of just 40,000 so you can imagine just the the chaos that that ensued and so these makeshift refugee camps were set up with really kind of horror very dire circumstances you know they've been written about extensively from the UN and the medicines Sans Frontier. so I kind of don't need to go into it now but you know we're talking kind of lack of sanitation very poor food kind of lots of threats of Danger. Um, and one of the projects that I visited, I visited several projects in Lesvos, um, and one of them was this wonderful restaurant called Nan, which is Uh, a word that means bread in Farsi and across the Indian subcontinent and in um, Dari, which is the Afghan language. And of course, bread also is an ingredient uh, that brings a meal together. And the way that naan operated was that it was set up by um, some Greek women again, but it... um, was a place where both refugees and Greek locals could work, with the idea being to kind of bring together some of the fragmentation that the influx of refugees had brought about. And I I loved visiting it. Lena, who ran it, was just an indescribable force of power. She'd been volunteering as an activist for many years on the island. And the menu reflected the breadth of the journeys that many of the refugees had gone on so we had everything from uh really hearty uh, kind of gram masala and turmeric and ginger spiced uh chickpea curry to kind of more middle eastern fare like roasted smoky aubergines mixed with tahini Mm -hmm. and garlic Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was it was just a wonderful space. Uh, I, I I'm smiling as I'm I'm kind of describing this because uh, what they created was so unique. Yes.
0: And the the food. Let's just have a moment for the food. I mean, we're telling these extraordinary stories of people restoring dignity to people who've been to hell and back. But actually, the food in your book, Yasmin, is blooming gorgeous. Let's keep going with that story of restoring respect ah, and dignity. Your second food moment home for a day. This is still in Lesbos.
2: I mean, I'm you know, I've been a human rights activist for many years, but this is probably one of the most moving kind of experiences I've had. Um it's of this uh organization called Home for All uh, that was established by Nikos and Katerina, um, two Greek locals. One was a kind of fisherman, the other kind of ran the local fish restaurant. They were, you know, had a very established life kind of in Lesbos, just, you know, being food entrepreneurs. And then one day Nikos was out fishing in the boat and he saw this in the distance, saw another boat approaching, and in it were some people wearing hijabs, kind of looking a bit, kind of confused, a bit tired. And he asked them, you know, are you okay? Where have you come from? What's going on? And they explained that they were Syrian refugees. They, you know, were escaping the Syrian civil war. So he brought them to shore and went home and told Katerina, and she was like, gosh, we must take them some food, some water, some blankets, some clothes. So they did all of that. And that moment, was so extraordinary as it would be for for me and you imagine if we were just suddenly on the beach in i don't know like brighton or somewhere and we suddenly saw a boat come in i think you know we can sometimes forget that a lot of these places affected by by refugee crisis you know this they were very ordinary kind of places um Anyway, they felt so moved by this that over the course of the next few years, they decided to shift their restaurant into uh, an NGO, which would provide free meals every day for residents of the refugee camps on the island. And what was unique about this is it wasn't just a case of, you know, putting some food in a container and dishing it out. They would set up their restaurant with white linen kind of tablecloths, with proper tableware, glassware, Serve meals that were reflected of the refugee communities, whether they were Afghani dishes or Indian subcontinent dishes or, you know, um, I don't know, Iranian dishes. And through that, through that act of kind of setting a place at the, at the, at, at the table at their restaurant, they would restore dignity, you know, in a way that, you know, they felt was lacking in how the refugees were being treated. You know, Katarina told me, you know, she would see UN officials give out food to people in like little plastic tubs with little plastic kind of forks and, and, and people would be looking for like a rock to sit on. And the whole idea was to kind of say, look, you know, I see you. Uh, you know, you I I hear you come into my home, which is why they called it home for all. And again it was just such a great space. And again I visited it several times. And uh, the atmosphere was was just, yeah, again, so warm. And they have really created a space which was so unique and, and it just moved me greatly. Mm. And you can see every time
0: we turn the television on, um, you know, now what's happening to the people of Ukraine, how very quickly you are stripped of everything that makes you you as soon as you lose your home and you set off across a different border, not knowing where you're going. So that
2: respect is so essential, isn't it? To It really is, especially because um on that very point i feel that you know it kind of gets lost a lot in the narrative about who refugees mm. really are you know they are they are not you know they are doctors mm. and and scientists and you know nurses and teachers and you know Often, often actually, they're the most—they're um, the people. Certainly, when we see kind of refugees from from the Middle East, places like Syria, they're the people with the most money because you need the money in order to be able to escape or pay a smuggler. You know, I, I think often it gets missed in kind of news reports just exactly how much people are leaving behind and kind of what level of life they were living before something changed, as you said, in an instant. Mm, absolutely, and you know what, Olia Hercules
0: and Elisa Timoshkina are doing right now with Cook for Ukraine. Is keeping that image of Ukraine alive as a country. You know, uh, I've interviewed Olya many times, and Alyssa actually. Um, but it was very important to 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 kind of capture what that country was about through. It's food. And so lots of people have been sharing what what they've experienced about Ukraine to keep it away from those awful headlines of war, war, war. It's so much more than that. And, you know, just to really kind of cook it alive, to keep it alive, to keep that narrative that it is a whole place with a whole life with people who have a real depth to them rather than these stripped down people, you know, already losing their identity.
2: Absolutely. I think you've really hit the nail on the head there. I think that humanising people is one of the most powerful acts that we can do. And I think I've... that's been very important to me in all my books, whether I was talking about the people of Iran in the Saffron Tales or Palestinian people in Zaytun or people from different migrant and refugee communities, trying not to, yeah, trying to just get, really break it down into the nuance. You know, I remember, um, I, I I always say to people, you know, when, when people think of, of, of people from the Middle East, they, they put them into boxes. It's either like terrorist or refugee. And I'm like, well, why does, you know, Ali always have to yeah. be that? You know, more often than not, he is just, just someone who's kicking back, watching Netflix, yeah. you know, eating a takeaway like well, me and exactly. you. It's 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 you know, the similarity you know, I've always believed that people wherever we are in the world have got more Uh, that unites us than divides us exactly especially if you're breaking bread together your
0: third food moment takes us to Istanbul but actually you live in little Istanbul don't you I do Uh, in your little part of North London you've got 50 Turkish restaurants within a mile radius of your house and you bring that to life you talk about the Anatolian pop music the smell of the charcoal grill and lamb chops the smoky mashed aubergine and charred flatbreads I mean you really do write a place alive don't you (laughs) Do, do, do you see yourself as a travel writer or as a food writer
2: I'm... It's hard, isn't it? Because obviously I write about food and travel. Um, but yeah, I adore where I live and I wanted to bring it to life really because I think, you know, we can, and I think the pandemic again made us, I think, more observant of our surroundings, didn't it? So I, mm. I'm very lucky. I can travel to the Eastern Mediterranean every day uh, through just visiting my greengrocer, grocer and then, you know, the ingredients that are available to me, you know, whether they're, you know, incredible um, bunches of fresh herbs for like a fraction of what you'd pay at the supermarket or, you know, courgette flowers that I like to kind of stuff and make into dolmades. Um, I do feel very fortunate. Uh, But I I am lucky and I think that also played a big part in my affection for the region. Um, uh, But yes, Istanbul is, is just an incredibly special place, I think. Have you been? I haven't. It's one of the
0: very few places oh. I haven't been. I really, really must. But I've stopped flying now, so it's it would t-
2: take a long time to get there. But I will. I'll get there. Oh, good for you. Well, you can go overground. I'm going to give you a little tip as a travel writer. Yes. It's a nice journey, actually. The best, you know, way to do it, I think... Well, the best way to get to Athens overground, I think, is going getting the train to Venice. And then from mm-hmm. Venice, you can get a boat. But you can get a train pretty much kind of um, all the way along there you know to Thessaloniki and then change mm. and go down to Istanbul yes, so I have it is at the possible <laughs> <laughs> I am planning like old, I am planning the old orient express that is that used to exactly be route, it? <laughs> exactly it still goes apparently so the reason i wanted to write about istanbul specifically in the book is i think that it is a place that bridges so many identities you know the classic you know half of it's in Europe half of it's in Asia but also the multitude of identities that within that are within Istanbul whether it's kind of the Kurdish community or the you know alawite community or obviously the Turkish community obviously all of these people are Turkish identities within their sub-identities and I had a really the story that I that really stays with me from my time there is a wonderful day that I spent with Berek Goja uh, a publisher uh, who lives in Istanbul and we made these beautiful kind of really traditional um, meatballs which are just a mainstay of of Turkish home cooking they're flavoured with just like some cumin and some pulver bear those kind of that kind of light uh, red pepper flake, um, lots of garlic and onion and paprika and oregano, and uh, then we also made this gorgeous hot yogurt soup, which honestly, I always tell people to go to that in the book. It is a real uh, favorite of mine, a beautiful, creamy, rich yogurt soup with with flecks of kind of mint in it and and it 's finished with a lovely um, uh, buttery, chili kind of uh, oil. Anyway, so we were talking about identities because that's what I wanted to d- kind of delve into in Istanbul. And she is of Kurdish origin. And we had this very frank conversation. You know, I, I wanted to know, like, well, what do you think there should be a separate Kurdish state? You know, how what would that look like? And she really pushed back against, you know, what I expected her to say. And actually, I think she said something far more interesting in a way. And she said, well, look, what do we want another ethnically pure states in the region you know we've already got one it's caused a lot of issues and actually more than that in the 21st century do we want to start going down the route of having more and more states and national identities or is it better for us to just to start thinking you know about how we can live and work together and i loved that and it it i just felt it was a very powerful message and one that i think can get lost when we think, oh, well, how do we solve a problem when we just give people Mm -hmm. their own ethnic state? As many Turks pointed out to me, that, you know, what actually is needed is for proper human rights within Turkey so that the Kurdish community can exercise their rights freely and not be persecuted, not trying to divide us into more and more kind of small groups. Yeah. And, and you meet Musa,
0: who's a Kurdish Turk, and he kind of exemplifies all that, doesn't he? He won't identify as any particular nationality. He doesn't like labels. He sees himself as a gypsy, a human melting pot of all, all that's around him. I mean, that's really fascinating, isn't it? I mean, how do you feel about labels and borders now, after this extraordinary trip, which really challenges the whole notion of borders?
2: It's a very good question. Um, you know, I think that the fact that I'm of as- Three heritages, you know, British, Iranian, Pakistani, has always meant that I have had quite a fluid concept of what nationality, identity, belonging and borders mean. Um, I certainly think that we can forget that kind of nation states are relatively new phenomenon within our history. You know, uh, over the last several thousand millennia, we've mainly operated through empire. Obviously, we know about the British Empire, but you know, there's been the Ottoman Empire, there's, you know, been the Persian Empire, there've been the Roman Empire. And nation states are relatively new constructs, they're only a couple of hundred years old. And many of the kind of conflicts that we've seen played out ethnic conflicts have certainly been around those borders that we've just kind of created, kind of lines in the sand that don't necessarily reflect reality. And I think I don't necessarily have the answers, but I am quite concerned, I think. And a motivation for writing the book was really being aware that the World Bank predicts that by 2050, we're going to have around 150 million climate refugees. That isn't that far away. And, you know, how are we going to deal with this huge movement of people um, in the very near future? Um, and I think part of that, you know, unless we're going to go down a very reactionary route, is going to just be to have to step back from what our 21st century concepts of borders were. Exactly. And,
0: it, and embrace. And, and, you know, the thing that you demonstrate so clearly is that food equals lack of borders.
1: You know, mm. you, you talk
0: about the, the Turks in your hometown, um, you know, who who who've brought their recipes with them. Um we don't see them as other. We love their food. Um, you know, immigration has made London particularly mm. and the rest of the UK such a richer food culture. Um let's finish with your fourth food moment in Cyprus.
2: Cyprus is a place I think that brings all the themes of the book together a beautiful Mediterranean island it's like picture perfect you know soil that's kind of as red as clay the air is fragrant with kind of orange blossom um it's shimmering blue seas you know Um, But also an island that is sadly divided, Uh, Turkish Cypriot in the north, Greek Cypriot in the south, a UN partition line running through the middle. So I wanted to go there to explore what borders and identity meant. And what I found there, I think, is really, through the stories of both Greek Cypriot and Turkish Cypriot um, refugees within their own island, about how for them, despite kind of politicians on both sides trying to influence a kind of sense of division or separation, in their eyes, they just saw themselves as Cypriot. And what I was inspired by were the cross-border initiatives, whether it was a cross-border cycling club that, you know, was doing kind of, you know, group tours uh, or had competitions, or just on a smaller scale, a wonderful kind of cafe, actually also called Home, which was Situated on in the kind of um, buffer zone in between the two territories, and it was a place again run by Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots. The menu reflected that. The library in the cafe was fascinating. It had all kinds of books about reconciliation and conflict from kind of and transitions to justice from Northern Ireland or from South Africa, and it was just such an inspiring space. And it again reflected to me that so often ordinary citizens are in such a different place than so many of our political leaders. Um, and it really left me with a sense of optimism that perhaps there was a way that, you know, where governments fail, citizens can step in and create spaces where we can coexist without borders.
0: Yasmin, this episode is going to go out on the day of the announcement of the André Simon Awards. Uh, you're up against six very strong contenders. Um, what, what would it mean to you to win an award like this?
2: Well, I have to say it was such a privilege to be nominated for such a prestigious award and to be in a category with so many exceptional books, many of which I own. Um, but I mean, I would be completely over the moon to win for this book. It's, I think, my most personal book to date and for all kinds of reasons. I really poured my heart and soul into it um, being the kind of child of migrants, the kind of issue of, of migration has always been so dear to me, especially, you know, coming from a family that did face political persecution and seeing the climate that kind of exists at the moment politically. It just, um, I think it would just send a really wonderful message about how we all want the world to be. And yeah, as we've discussed on, on a more personal note, I, uh, it was a very difficult book to write because of what was going on in my personal life. I did think about giving back my advance. I thought I couldn't write it, I thought it was too difficult given what I'd gone through. Um, and I'm so overwhelmed and touched that so many people have enjoyed the book and it has meant all that was worthwhile.
0: And I'll stick my neck out and say that Ripe Figs would be my choice for the André Simon Food Book of the Year 2021, if only because it raises possibly the most important questions about humanity right now. Thanks for listening. You can also find me on Food FM, the online radio station and global podcast platform, which aims to change the world through food. Please do get in touch on social media. I'm at Cooking the Books with Jilly Smith on Instagram and at Jilly Smith on Twitter. And I'll be back next week to chat with Yemisi herself about her own book, Long Throat Soups, Sex and Nigerian Taste Buds.